Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Do you know that dragons really like gold? Well, in 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 fantasy literature, dragons are they they nest on mounds of gold. I mean, this is the dwarven dream is to find yeah. a dragon and slay him. Are you guys talking about Game of Thrones? Uh, no. Obliquely. <laughs> We're Listen, about make sure you preface everything with a spoiler alert. I haven't I haven't dived in yet. Oh no, we we're only talking about Game of Thrones in the way that Game of Thrones connects to all life. So, I well, mean, I we're always like talking out. about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's let's get this thing started, man. David, the music. <laughs> Welcome back to Alpha Chat, everybody, the infrequently updated podcast of FT Alphaville. I'm Cardiff Garcia in New York. We've got David Cowhan in London. Hey, David. Hey, sir. And we've got the ever-amazing Izzy Kaminska in Geneva. Izzy, what's up? Hello. Hey, Izzy. So, guys, three things on the agenda today. We're going to start with a bit on gold and Bitcoin with Izzy. We're going to talk about Japan and the big BOJ meeting with David. And I'm going to say a few words about Slovenia at the end. So, Izzy, you're up first. You know, last week was a fascinating week to be following gold. The prior week was a fascinating week for Bitcoin. Um, Why don't you just talk generally about how what's happened in the last couple of weeks influences or should influence our understanding of what constitutes money? Wow, that's kind <laughs> of a big question. question. <laughs> right. How long do we have here? Well, In five I mean, it's obviously very interesting. And everything that has been happening with Bitcoin and with gold, it's getting everybody thinking about money. What is money? What is value even? How do we, you know, what is a store of value? Um, And I think there are definitely some characteristics that money has, um, which have kind of evolved over the years. So in, in, you know, back in the back in the days, gold was a very useful type of money because a it couldn't be forged. I mean, it it could be forged, but it couldn't. I mean, it was hard to replicate in the sense that once you had gold, you either had it or or you didn't. Um, I mean, alchemists will have been trying to create gold out of nothing, but, you know, it was a firm ledger. Um, and, it's, and it also acted as sort of as a, as a system of account, right? Um, and it was shiny and it was scarce. So these are all sorts of attributes that were very useful back in, like, ancient times because we didn't have any other kind of collective means of um, recording wealth in a fungible way that everybody could um, remember. But ironically enough, even the Romans didn't use gold as a money on a day-to-day basis. The Romans were actually very into their debt. They had all sorts of um, debt 
um, securitized mortgage-backed type, you know, agreements. They only really used gold for payment when um, when they were transacting with foreigners that they didn't know because um, it's all about, you know, if you, it, on a domestic basis, you, if you know the people you're dealing with, the reputation matters more than a bit of gold. It's just a graver um, idea that... Um the kind of the myth of barter idea that uh, there was always credit arrangements in domestic situations and it was only with strangers that you needed to either barter or use something like gold. Exactly, absolutely. And um, it's the David Graeber idea and and, uh, he's obviously the author of Debt um, and it's a fantastic book and it really tells you about how uh, where money evolved from and and how debt we all have, we in culture generally, um, debt, you know, it, it comes before any type of commodity barter. Before you have barter, you have to have an obligation system in place. So um, it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at it, and it, it has confused economists for many years. And, and the classical way of looking at it is always, oh, well, commodity money comes first. But um, there's a lot of you know, academic evidence to suggest it's actually the other way around, that we have obligations. I do you a favor, David. Will you, in five years' time, remember to do me that favor back? Well, you, you paid me in Swiss francs last time, Izzy, so... <laughs> yeah, but you see, that's, that's really what it's about. And I can, I can issue my own money. I mean, I could issue Izzy notes. Um, if I like promise you and Cardiff a coffee, and that's like so, you have effectively a security that's backed redeemable in coffees that I actually have I think to have Izzy notes would become a widespread acceptable <laughs> medium of exchange instantly. <laughs> um, well, you see, I have to be careful. I can't overissue them because, like, I only have so much capacity for coffees. <laughs> so, Izzy, this is like that's that's great context. And why don't you tie in those themes to? like the the fall in the gold price lately and, and what you think that shows. Because I was struck by the asymmetry of the gold bugs, I guess, saying on the one hand that the rise of gold, you know, was about fundamentals and it told all these amazing stories. And then like the recent fall is, oh, that's just a blip. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. I mean, the, the inconsistency there is kind of striking. Um, what yeah, do you think no, I, I think you're right. And um, I mean, gold itself, like the, the value attached to gold is completely, like, it's, an, it's, it's a social construct. Gold doesn't really have much value because you can't eat it, you can't use it. You can wear it as jewelry, but, you know, if, if, if it comes to the crunch, like would you rather have a gold watch or would you rather have uh, some food? I think everybody would prefer to have some food. <laughs> um, so it's, it's only the, the value of gold is very subjective. And when you have a crisis, um, I mean, it was Warren Buffett who famously said, you know, the gold market is about taking something out of the ground and then immediately reburying it. That's how ridiculous it is in, in some sense. And when you have a crisis, it's just um, people are more inclined to rebury uh, more quickly than they extract, right? And it's all about the free float. So whatever is available on the free float really fundamentally determines the price. And a small imbalance in that free float can, um, you know, it can make a big difference. And so we're back in 2008, and actually not in 2008 at the peak crisis, because it was afterwards that um, gold actually began to rise in price. And that was a reflection of of people reburying it more quickly than it was being extracted or released from vaults, you know. Um, and that's down to um, 
perception on the on the street and retail investors and all that sort of stuff that all made a difference. But now we're in this weird world of of zero rates, and gold has certain attributes in that environment because it isn't negative yielding. So the only um, from from an investor point of view, you you either have um, the risk of putting your money in a negative yielding or you know security or in a a deposit that might get bailed in, all that sort of stuff. Gold is very attractive because it can't. You know, the only risk to gold is it falls in price. But as a investor, if you're looking for a safe security, you can buy gold and hedge it. You can buy it and sell it short on the um, on the CME, and that way you have a perfectly hedged security, right? Um, and it's all about inflation expectations. As soon as interest yields go up there is less incentive to hold gold because you're just throwing away an opportunity to get yield. Sure. So in the yeah, last I mean, three months, we had a kind of amazing sort of um, boost in inflation expectations out of nowhere. And, and this was a real opportunity to kind of move out of gold and capture some of that yield. And it came to a head last week because inflation expectations kind of rejigged themselves around um, and I think gold was very indicative of what was happening. Yeah, Izzy, we're, uh, that's fantastic, and we're, we're cramming a lot into this podcast, I know, but I want to very quickly turn this over to Bitcoin, which shares some attributes with gold, uh, and I think you just mentioned some of them, but also it has the added distinction of being pure information, pure – it's like um, it's like what Gary Gorton, when he talks about like information sensitivity – versus information insensitivity. This is the most information-sensitive currency alive. It's backed by nothing but information. It is information. Um, talk about that for a minute and what you think happened um, in the last few weeks where first everybody went stir-crazy because its its overall value pierced a billion, uh, and then it, it fell almost as quickly as it, as it shot up, and now it's been sort of uh, you know volatile in the last week or so. Um. I mean, I I have so many opinions on Bitcoin, but generally speaking, it's a it's a security that has been created for hoarding purposes. It's a pure hoarding device, and um, there is obviously a scarce amount of, of of Bitcoins. And in its fundamental form, it is nothing more than a ledger. It is a memory of transaction, and uh, it, 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 it it's like. It's like a, a check security in which I say, I give it to you and you say, well, is he used to own it? Then Cardiff owns it. And then you give it to David. And we know exactly you know, the history of the uh, transaction chain. And, and, and it's, it's a memory, right? Does it have value? That's the question. It does have value, providing everybody agrees it has value. So it's really the best way to describe it. it it's the emperor's new clothes of money, right? So as long as we all pretend the emperor has clothes, it has value. But it only takes one little boy to say, hang on, this 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 Bitcoin thing has no clothes and it has... The emperor is um, naked. Yeah, exactly. The emperor is naked. Ha! And it's backed by, you know, <laughs> very strange, dark sort of criminal, you know, drugs and laundry. That is a much, much better fable, by the way. If, uh... <laughs> yeah, that was, that, I think that's a, a really deep point what you said about the kind of inherently deflationary nature of Bitcoin. Like, that's part of the appeal, and yet people pretend that it can become this this widespread um, accepted currency. It's very strange. 
Well, and, and I think that Emperor's New Clothes thing will, means it will always be volatile because, you know, it, it's perception. It's pure perception. And like you said, information sensitivity on that front is, you know, the most volatile thing, and it's designed to be volatile. And that makes that makes sense for a lot of people because guess what? There isn't a lot of volatility anywhere else. Um, so what a great trading vehicle for, for hedge funds and people seeking volatility. But also the fact that it's designed to be deflationary, this is what really annoys me, is this idea that it's a fairer system. That is just not true, because anything that is specifically designed to be deflationary is designed to concentrate wealth and create a them and us sort of world. We with the Bitcoins and everybody else who doesn't have them. Oh, you silly people, you didn't invest early enough. You know, That's not a fairer system. That's the exact opposite. It's a completely selfish system that's going to hurt the economy, not make it better. Plus, with all that volatility, this is my last point, I promise, um, there's no stopping competition. So you have like endless alternative bitcoins that come into the market. You've already got Litecoin and Ripple and Qcoins and all these other sorts. There's no stopping a new, uh, you know, entity issuing these sorts of virtual currencies. And that creates actually a hyperinflationary problem because that's what happened in Weimar. The problem in Weimar was the fact that corporates started issuing their own money and there was complete like, you know, it, like in the era of free banking in America to a certain degree, no control at all. Not guild. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, should, we, should we switch gears now and go to David and the Bank of Japan? Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> there's just, there's no, there's no easy segue from gold and Bitcoin to the BOJ. <laughs> you just have to say, all right. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's go, you know. Yeah, yen, please. Okay. Uh, well, we're still waiting for yen 100 to crack, which is, uh, has been fun. Everyone's had a post prepped. Uh, hasn't got there. There's rumors of strikes at about 100, which may be taken out over the next while. Um, and everyone's waiting to see what Kuroda comes back with uh, from this BOJ meeting. It's the first one since the kind of um, qualitative and quantitative easing thing came up. That's the Bank of Japan's uh, attempt unveiled at the start of April to live up to new Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's hopes on the monetary side, or the monetary side of Abenomics, which is Abe's um, attempt to kickstart the Japanese economy. So the quantitative and qualitative easing involves a doubling of the monetary base over two years, um, aggressive purchase of longer-term bonds, and uh, the idea is to target a 2% rate of inflation. Um, it was aggressive, and it got everybody reasonably excited and kicked the yen up, uh, or kicked the yen weaker. Um, it's unlikely any new policy is going to be announced. Uh, what everyone's looking for is some sort of new CPI forecast in the semi-annual outlook report. Um, if there's something about the 2% being exceeded or kind of longer termed it, if he says something about 2015, that's going to be significant, and you might see it going over 100. Uh, okay, let's let's... Give this some context, though. I mean, so Kuroda, from what I understand, after announcing that 2% was the new explicit target, backed away a little bit from his from the enthusiasm, from the strength of his earlier statements, well, right? He said that it would be done in context. Yeah, well, he backed away, but it was also kind of orthodox central bank speech, right? He was saying, was this, was this when he was talking about bubbles and he'd be wary and he'd keep an eye on the markets? I mean, 
he said this about a week after he announced this qualitative quantitative stuff and he said no new measures will be forthcoming in the near future which is fair enough because the old measures haven't had time to kick in and that's still kind of why we're not expecting to see anything at this meeting because you haven't it, this hasn't filtered through at all japanese money hasn't actually uh, flowed out i mean there was um I think there was net buying again. Uh, I think, yeah, there, sorry, net sellers of foreign assets again on a substantial basis. So what he's already done has yet to filter through. So I don't think you're going to see anything new happening just yet, even though by the time this is posted, I might be proved horribly wrong. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I remember um, just a couple of months ago um, when the new government took office that a lot of people thought, well, Finally, we're going to get some movement on the exchange rate. It looks like they're serious this time. But I was also struck by a post you did, I think, at the end of last year, showing that analysts' forecasts on the exchange rate are always wrong. I mean, they always say we're going to break through this new barrier, and we never do. And it seems like, um, I don't know, with, with the failure to break through 100 now, uh, it reminds me of all that, even though in this case I think I think forecasts have changed and now everybody expects it to yeah. to break through 100 at some point, but it, it keeps not doing that. This was one of our charts of the year last year when everyone That's was, right. uh, he couldn't really be a yen, a yen bear. Um, well, the other interesting thing about the yen 100 mark is people are suggesting it's also a bit of a pain threshold the other way because of energy imports and Japanese authorities mightn't be too angry with it kind of hovering around yen 100 because it might get very expensive for pulling in if they want to pull in energy and pay for energy if it goes much above that. Sure. Hard to tell, though. Okay. Um, the last thing I would mention, this is one of the scariest things I've heard coming out of Japan, is that Kuroda is promising to do something about kind of the demographic problem. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. He what does that, that mean? He's Can gonna, you explain that a, bit, a little we, bit? We don't know. He's going he's gonna to tackle low birth rates. We don't know if this is going to be an incredibly <laughs> hands-on approach. Or, I mean, is this is this Kuroda putting his non-athletic prowess to the night, test? in other words. Exactly. Kuroda's on the prowl. Um, he could just import some of Europe's unemployed, though. We'd be kind of okay with that. But anyway, onwards. Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to chuck it to you, Cardiff, um, if you don't mind, because uh, one of the posts that I read about twice this week was yours on Slovenia. Um, that must have taken you a while. Well, I mean, I don't have much to do outside of the office. Um, yeah, so Slovenia, uh, this is... One of the countries that gets talked about as the possible next, you know, focal point in this uh, interminable, uh, interminable, sorry, what's the word, interminable? I think interminable is about right. Yeah, interminable European uh, financial crisis. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the next focal point or not, um, but I think think it's important to mention a few things, starting with the fact that it is a very different situation from – what we just now saw in Cyprus, right? So mm-hmm. Cyprus had a banking sector that was enormous, something like 700% of uh, GDP or whatever. Um, the nature of the problem there was different in that the banking system in Cyprus had a business model that w- was dependent on recycling kind of dodgy Russian money. It was hugely dependent on deposits as a source of funding. Slovenia's banking sector has a lot of problems, but it's much smaller than that, and it is not quite so dependent on deposits. It's a more kind of what you might call a traditional uh, banking sector crisis, like the one we saw in Spain, where there was this huge surge in investment in the middle part of the last decade. There was a construction sector boom, too much household borrowing and spending, and then with the crisis, everything came crashing down. That's a classic um, classic Eurozone recipe. Yeah, what, yeah exactly. And... What's happened, essentially, uh, is that 
non-performing loans in the banks have skyrocketed um, somewhere bet- to somewhere between um, Spain levels and Greek levels. Um, I mean, as a as a percentage of of overall loans, obviously. Sure. And Slovenia, like other parts of the eurozone, is now in the midst of a, a really kind of aggressive and brutal double dip recession. GDP is going to go down again this year after having gone down last year. Um, next year, the outlook is a little bit um, suspect, but part of that depends on on what happens with the banking sector, of course. So. Anyways, what, what's happening is that the sovereign bank uh, debt loop in Slovenia is, is incredibly Was strong. Was debt loop or death loop or both? Debt or death loop, yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, it, could be, it could be the same thing, although I think in this case it won't be. So the, the issue is that the banks need to be recapitalized, but it's important to understand the mechanics of how it works uh, before even getting to whatever a bailout might look like. So. What ended up happening was that after the crisis, all of the Slovenian banks, sort of foreign interbank lenders, disappeared, right? The the banking system there was hugely dependent on interbank lending as opposed to the capital markets. And what ended up happening was that to fund themselves, both the Slovenian sovereign and the banks had to start selling bonds um, also to external you know, foreign uh, investors. And a couple of years ago, the sovereign had trouble continuing to fund itself and essentially stopped selling bonds, and it started funding itself through very short-term, I think, 12- and 18-month bills, T-bills. And the way it raised the money was by selling those bills to the domestic banks. The domestic banks would then take those bills and pledge them as collateral to the Slovenian Central Bank. The Slovenian Central Bank, in exchange, would give these banks, the domestic banks, claims on euro liquidity, those claims were then transferred to the government as payment for the original bills, and then the government would use those claims uh, through the Target 2 payment system to pay off its um, its foreign bond buyers, right, its foreign bondholders. Sure. Now, this sure, is ECB not like exposure. a long-term sustainable solution, and one of the issues is that the ECB isn't going to be very comfortable with this forever, right, with this kind of growing exposure um, to the Slovenian banking system and then by extension to the Slovenian sovereign because that's whose you know T-bills it's accepting as collateral. So that's one issue, but the other issue uh, is just that at some point the, um, the sovereign is going to have to find like a longer-term sustainable way uh, to fund itself given that the banking sector continues to get worse and worse, which means you need to recap the banks and hopefully that way uh, foreign bondholders, foreign investors, foreign you know external lenders will regain confidence in the sovereign, and it'll be able to regain access to like open debt markets. In other words, it'll be able to sell debt not just to its domestic banks, but to other to other people. Sure. Um, it's worth noting here that Slovenia did not go into this recent phase with like a big debt problem or a big. Um, or a big current account uh, deficit either. So its budget deficit is pretty small. It's supposed to be about 5% of GDP this year. Its debt-to-GDP ratio is about half. It's a little bit more than 50%. Um, that's not that bad. Like Relatively healthy, of, like to, by Eurozone yeah. standards. Uh, I mean, it's not great. Uh, and it is having trouble accessing bond markets. But relative to the rest of Europe, that's, that looks pretty good, actually. Um, so I don't think that if there's a bailout that the terms are going to be too, you know, stringent. I mean, you never know. There's an election in Germany this year and whatnot, but it's not like you can point to Slovenia and say, 
you guys came into this with a huge problem. You yeah. guys haven't done enough. There's they no have moral, moral finger pointing to be done. But is there still a small country risk, or are you looking at an orthodox bailout? I mean, could well, they could experiment with something like it's, Slovenia it's, again? Yeah, it's not it's not going to be orthodox in the sense of like how the other countries have had quote unquote orthodox bailouts. It's going to be something like a combination of Cyprus and Spain. Okay. It's going to be like Cyprus, probably. I mean, by the way, I, I'm, this is all very hypothetical. I'm just talking about likely scenarios people here. listen at their own risk yeah. exactly so if there's a bailout right there are likely to be bail-ins for bank debt holders right just like uh just including senior debt holders just like there were uh in cyprus you're not going to get depositors coming under threat i don't think that's, that's um, just a completely different structure of the banking system i assume yeah it's completely different structure but you also just aren't going to need it the numbers aren't huge but you're right it's a smaller country which means that um, you know, Europe might be lenient, but it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be quite as generous, I guess if you could call it, as it was with Spain, which was much bigger and you couldn't just bring the hammer down completely on them um, because, well, it's Spain. You might come, you know, the yeah, whole thing hammering, might come hammering yourself. Down. It's gun to head diplomacy again. But with Slovenia, you've got a small country can make example of chance, I suppose. Yeah, and there's always that risk. I, I just, I just don't know how likely it is. Right now, by the way, the Slovenian government, it should be noted, um, is trying to sort of push ahead and avoid any kind of bailout um, from the rest of Europe. So essentially it's done a couple of things. It, it did establish a kind of bad bank. Um, it's completely undercapitalized right now, so it's not really relevant yet. It is um, planning to announce some kind of privatization program by May 9th. Uh, Slovenia's government is hugely involved um, in, in its economy and part of that, I think, is just a, a legacy of its past. Uh, part of it is also that it's been reluctant to shed these assets at fire sale prices. Part of it, um, I don't know, might just be that the, the kind of uh, corrupt arrangements that always go along with these things are very sure. difficult to unwind. So it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it, it's unlikely most observers don't think that's going to be quite enough and that at some point it will have to ask for a bailout or the ECB might push the issue and, and sort of force it on them. Um, but they're going to try for a little while, and they've got some time. Like, I don't think we're going to be talking about Slovenia in crisis mode for, for a little while. Last week it did sell a bunch of T-bills, twice as many. I mean, it raised twice as much as um, they'd expected to. But, again, the main bidders were the country's domestic banks. So it's almost like, well, okay. yeah. yeah, it doesn't really – that, that doesn't mean anything. It's not it just means helpful. that the country found a clever loophole – but through which to, like, buy itself some time. Um, and it's done that. So, anyways, if you look at, like, the debt it needs to sell this year, um, I think they're I think they've got enough cash to keep going for a little while. But that doesn't mean that this thing can't all of a sudden, you know, if the ECB changes its mind and says, no, we've got to do this now, or if Slovenia changes its mind and says, we can't, if the Slovenian government says, we can't get there just through these ideas we have to privatize assets and hopefully regain access over time to bond markets, Would then they might that? request it. So there's just no certainty about when it's going to happen. But my point is that you shouldn't be surprised if it happens very quickly, but neither should you be surprised if we don't talk about Slovenia <laughs> for a very long time. Well, you've written you know? it now. I mean, we can just re we can just bring this post back up whenever we want. Yeah, Job probably done. that's what we'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's probably what we'll do. So I don't. I don't really know what's going to happen there. I'm a little bit less worried about Slovenia than I was. Um, Should we, you know, as as Cyprus was going down? But this is Europe, man. I don't want to, you know, you know this as well as anybody. I don't want to get comfortable. You don't um, jinx it. Well, we yeah. we just don't want to tell everyone that we have kind of bailout Q and A's for every country. 
in the back end. I mean, I was thinking about starting a series on those. Maybe like the, do like Luxembourg next or something. We could do like the obit column in the FT and kind of send out requests for bailout columns to everybody in the editorial floor. Um, <laughs> any Frenchman out there, I want to write a French Q and A, please. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, I, I suspect that the uh, I suspect that the answer rate on that will be quite low. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, all right. Are we uh, looking at well, anything else before we go, or should we should we wrap it up? Let people no, have a nice weekend. I think I think that's about it, man. This was a this was a fun, quick one, and um, I think we can wrap it up, man. Wish our readers a happy weekend. Yeah, happy weekend. That's right. Bye bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.